0: Peeps, you're listening to She's My Cherry Pie, the baking podcast from the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. I'm your host, Jesse Sheehan. I'm a baker, recipe developer, and author of three baking books, including my latest, Snackable Bakes. Each Saturday, I'm hanging out with the sweetest bakers around and taking a deep dive into their signature bakes. Today's guest is Molly Wilkinson, an American pastry chef living in France. Molly trained at Le Cordon Bleu in Paris and teaches pastry and baking workshops from her home in Versailles, France. Yes, Versailles. Molly loves to make baking fun, and she's an expert at teaching French techniques for making macaron, pâte choux, and more. Her debut cookbook, French Pastry Made Simple, was released in 2021. Molly joins me to talk about her baking journey and all things bouche de Noël, the traditional Yule log cake that's beloved by the French. Stay tuned for my chat with Molly. Thank you to Plugra Premium European Style Butter for supporting today's show. Get ready to savor the season with Plugra Butter. With the holidays right around the corner, I know so many of you are planning what baked goods you'll be making. Maybe you're thinking about a buttery sugar cookies decorated with royal icing for that next cookie swap or some light as air gougere for New Year's Eve. The pastry chefs and bakers I interview for this podcast are the best in the business, and they all agree on one thing when it comes to baking. Ingredients matter. Plugra Premium European-style butter is the perfect butter for your next baking project because it contains 82% butter fat. Also, it's slow-churned, making Plugra more pliable and easy to work with. I've been using Plugra ever since my first professional baking job. My go-to are the unsalted sticks. I get to control the amount of salt in the recipes, and the sticks come individually wrapped, perfect for precise measurements. Sticks or solid, salted or unsalted, whichever you prefer. Plugra Premium European Style Butter is the ultimate choice. Ask for Plugra at your favorite grocery store, or dash over to Plugra.com for a store locator and some delicious holiday recipes. That's Plugra.com. Are you looking for a holiday gift for a foodie friend? Well, we have the perfect one, a Cherry Bomb magazine subscription. Cherry Bomb is a beautiful keepsake print magazine that features stories and profiles on women and food, recipes you'll want to make, and gorgeous full-color photographs. An annual subscription is $100 and includes four issues with free shipping. Or check out the Bomb Squad membership program. Members get invites to member-only monthly meetings with networking, first dibs on event tickets, inclusion in the member directory, and more. There are three membership options, starting at $50 a year. You can learn more about gifting a subscription or membership at cherrybomb.com. Let's check in with today's guest. Mom! So excited to have you on She's My Cherry Pie and to talk bouche de Noël with you and so much more.
1: I'm so excited. You started baking
0: when you were little, sitting on a high stool next to your mom. What kinds of things was she making and what do you recall loving helping her with?
1: It was all the classics. I am a Southern girl at heart. I'm from Dallas, Texas. And so it was a lot of chocolate chip cookies and brownies. And I think for me, it was a combination of the smells of everything that was being done. But then, of course, the cookie dough. Absolutely. 100%. But
0: despite your your deep love of baking, which you carried all the way through college, Post-college, you became a digital marketer, although you baked on a weekly basis for your co-workers, as bakers do. Was your baking at this point the kinds of things you were making? Was it French-inspired yet?
1: Not at all. Not at all. So I remember making a nine-layer Martha Stewart cake for one of my roommates at like two in the morning. But it was, it was all American classics. I had never explored French pastry, so I wasn't doing eclairs or macarons croissant, any of those things, it really was cookies, brownies, bars, and layered cakes. And that's about it.
0: So then you quit and you went to Le Cordon Bleu. When you left for France and, and knew you were going to go to pastry school, was it your intention to bake full-time when you finished the program? Or were you kind of like, this is something I really want to do. I'm going to take. I'm going to have this experience and see where it leads me.
1: The latter. It was very much so. This is a huge passion of mine. And growing up, it was definitely fostered by the people in my family and my friends and my coworkers, but I never truly thought that it was a job that I could go into. I actually, I didn't quit my job immediately. I am one of those people that has a plan B all the time. (laughs) I don't know if that's a pastry chef trait or something like that, but I love being organized, but I'm not like a perfectionist. And so for me, it was like, I need to have something in play to where if being a pastry chef or cooking doesn't work out I can fall back on it. And at that time I'd been working in marketing, so digital marketing for 7 years. I moved back home, I saved up to go to the Cordon Bleu and I even tested it out because I I'm just I'm really into research. So I researched for months and what I was hearing consistently was that a lot of people, they really enjoy baking at home, but making it their career is something entirely different. And so I went to a community college in Dallas. I took a semester doing their culinary basic program, three months, wearing the uniform. I loved it. I love staying after, cleaning up, scrubbing the floors, loves the atmosphere. And that's what really pivoted me into going to the Cordon Bleu and trying to see what I could make of it. When I was in marketing, I was a trainer. I think that stayed with me. I really love working with people. I love empowering people, but challenging them at the same time to try something new. When I graduated, I worked at lots of different places, both in Dallas and France, and it really was trying to figure out what I was going to do and how I was going to do it and where I was going to be.
0: Did you speak French when you left for Le Cordon Bleu?
1: No, not at all. all. And the not classes are in
0: French though, yes?
1: They're in French, but there is an English translator. But the thing to know is that the English translator doesn't translate everything and not perfectly. Right. And so I started taking classes while I was there and kept getting better and better. i an intermediate level now, having been lived, living here nine years. Uh, it's a difficult language. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. OK, so you left France when your visa
0: expired after school, but you came back and you've made France your home. And I wondered, like, are your family and friends, were they surprised? Were they like, Molly, what are you doing? Or is that so <laughs> Molly of you that they were like, oh, yeah, of course she's living in France now?
1: Well, I think for my friends, it was very obvious. It was exactly what you're saying. They're like, oh yeah, she, they could tell how much I loved it. My mom was still hanging on though. She was like, oh, she's going to move back to Dallas. She's going to move back, open a bakery here. Um, And I've I've never had any intention of opening a bakery ever. (laughs) I'm like, I just like teaching and creating and, you know, showing people how to do amazing recipes. So it it did. It took a lot of time, actually, for my family to become comfortable with it because we are very close. We like to have, you know, everyone close to each other. But I will say, I think once my mom started following me on Instagram, she saw kind of what my life was like here. And she's like, oh, I get it. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. So
0: I'd love you to tell us about your dessert style. I mean, I imagine to some degree it was formed during French pastry school and after and has something to do with French patisserie. However, I also know that the Fanny Farmer cookbook is your all-time favorite cookbook. So I love the mixture of that. Can you, yes. so can you unpack the style, which maybe has
1: components of both? Oh yeah, it's, it's a huge, massive style. Exactly what you were saying. So deep roots in American classic baking, like I was talking about, because that's what I grew up with. And as we said, I didn't do any pastry until I was actually in my mid to late twenties in pastry school and combining the two, finding out that French pastry, it has all of these really beautiful basic recipes that have been around for hundreds of years that are the basis for lots of different desserts that they make. That was so incredible for me to be able to pair with some of the flavorings or the simplicity that you can see in American baking to make it very accessible for people. And so I, I have I've gone through this massive journey of figuring out what my style was, which is a bit of kind of bright and fine American but still bringing in that gorgeous elegance, but also multi-layer effect that you have with French pastry in terms of textures and flavors. And I will say it's not a perfect, like it's not a perfect pastry. Like when you see my stuff, I don't mind if something's a little bit out of place. And I think for people that makes it a lot more accessible because when you go to Paris or you see these top pastry chefs on you know, social media, and the, it is the perfect mirror glaze. It's clean cut, the piping, there's no mistakes. That's just not me. Like, I don't mind if, you know, it's a little bit kind of funky on top with some fun, you know, roughly edged piping. And it's just more so showing my spirit and my joy in that pastry instead of being very, very strict.
0: I want you to tell us about your book, French Pastry Made Simple, I mean, I know that it has these 10 foundational recipes, Mm -hmm. and then sort of once you master those, the world is your oyster. It sounds like maybe that idea came to you when you sort of started to understand French pastry after school. I've never heard it described that way, that, oh, Mm. once you have these foundational recipes, you can actually make a lot of things. Can you tell us about that and how you came up with, like, the hook for the book, as it were?
1: Yeah, so after I graduated and I was working in different kitchens that I started realizing, gosh, I'm making that same recipe again, you know, and we're just doing something different with it. So I call pâté choux the multi-purpose dough for that very reason that you can make eclairs, cream puffs, gougères, even churros, saint Honoré, peri so many different things. And what's changing is the shape And the filling and so in this book i go through fillings so like pastry cream how to make fruit curds so you don't have to make just a lemon curd you can make a raspberry thyme curd and but using that same sort of base recipe because i was really seeing that these pastries essentially you're taking these same sort of 10 master recipes and you're just changing them up And making new creations. I love that.
0: (laughs) I also love throughout the book all of your tips and tricks, which you say can make the recipes a little bit longer, but in the best, like, hand-holdy way. As a recipe writer and cookbook author, I don't—I like my recipes to be short, but I really Mm -hmm. like to hold people's hands because I know as a baker and a consumer of cookbooks and recipes myself, I love it when someone says, oh, do this— oh, the reason it is brown is because of this. I love, love, love that. So I so appreciate all the detail that you include.
1: I should have put like a little asterisk at the beginning of the book that says, I write how I teach. And when I teach, I am if I'm teaching an hour and a half class, I'm literally talking for an hour and a half. And I'm giving you as much information that is going to be as helpful as humanly possibly for you. And so they are, they're kind of long. Like I can... And the opera cake recipe, I think it's three pages long, but I can teach that an hour and a half, two hours, because the parts aren't hard. It's just, it's a process. You know, there's, I think, six different pieces to it. That's
0: a great segue, because I wanted you to tell us a little bit about the teaching you do in France. I know you're making French pastry easy by breaking down recipes and tips and tricks, but I wondered are your students american do you teach in english i know they're all online either pre-recorded or like a in-person private class but who's the student
1: yeah so my students are typically they're american <laughs> my my crowd is mostly i would say like 80% american i have some australians i have folks from singapore austria all over the world it's really cool and it's folks that have tried american baking at home typically Maybe they've been to a bakery either in their hometown or they've come to France and they've tried a macaron or an eclair. And they're like, how do I make that? How can I make that at home? And so they're really starting to just dabble into French pastry. And I'm right there with them. And I'm like, you can do it. I describe it in ways that make sense to someone who hasn't started doing French pastry before because the... The techniques and the method are, they're different. It's not that they're harder. It's just a lot different than, you know, creaming together butter and sugar, adding the eggs and then adding the dry ingredients, which is a very, very typical process for a cookie or a cake, of that matter. And so it is just a step-by-step, breaking it down, making it easy.
0: We'll be right back. Today's episode is also presented by California Prunes. I'm a California prunes fan when it comes to smart snacking. Funnily enough, at the same time we started this podcast, my doctor told me how good prunes are for your gut, your heart, and even your bones. Prunes contain dietary fiber and other nutrients to support good gut health, potassium to support heart health, and vitamin K, copper, and antioxidants to support healthy bones. So prunes became a daily snack of mine. I have them in my cabinet at home, I put them in smoothies, and I bring them with me when I'm on the go because they are perfectly portable. Now let's talk about my true love, baking. California prunes are a great addition to baked goods, especially this time of year. They work beautifully in recipes with rich and complex flavors like espresso, olives, and chilies. And they enhance the flavor of warm spices, toffee, caramel, and chocolate. Consider adding prunes to scones, gingerbread, coffee cake, or any baked good that calls for dried fruit. If you're looking to make some holiday showstoppers, like a fruitcake you make ahead of time, keep prunes in mind when you're assembling the dried fruit you need. They add just the right texture and flavor. Be sure to check out the California Prunes website at californiaprunes.org for recipes and more. That's californiaprunes.org. I've got great news, listeners. Jubilee 2024 is taking place Saturday, April 20th at Center 415 in Manhattan, and tickets are on sale now. Jubilee is the largest gathering of women and culinary creatives in the food and drink space in the U.S. It's a beautiful day of conversation and connection, and I hope to see you there. You can learn more and snag tickets at cherrybomb.com. Now back to our guest. Now I would love to do a deep dive into your bouche de Noël. First things first, can you tell us what a bouche is for those that might not know?
1: Yeah, so a lot of people know it as a Yule log take. So it's a cake that's in the shape of a log. And it comes from pagan times. So it was a pagan tradition in France where they would decorate a log with moss, brandy, wine, a, mushroom. a, li- a literal
0: log in nature, yes? Yes,
1: exactly. Exactly. A log that they go out, they got it from the forest, they bring it in and they decorate it and make it as beautifully as they possibly could. And then it goes into the fireplace on the winter solstice. And the longer it burns, the tradition goes that the more good luck that you're going to have in the year to come. And so that continued for a very long time. There are a couple of other possible reasons and traditions behind it, as there always are with food history and stories. But we do know in the 19th century, pastry chefs noticed that that tradition was starting to go away. And they took a hold of it and said, we're going to make a cake. That looks like a log, just to kind of keep that symbolism there. And so you do start to see them starting December 1st, not really before that, <laughs> in all of the bakeries, all of the pastry shops here. And even the hotels have a big competition to where they're trying to make the most beautiful wine every year. And sometimes it's not even in the shape of a log. You'll see like a bell or a penguin. They're quite fun, so it's like a fun thing to go around to, you know, like the red to the Georges list, saying things like that, and try like the different bûche de noël every season.
0: And even though the log shape of this cake is just traditional at Christmas, are there like jelly roll cakes? Like, are there kind of cakes like that in French bakeries all year long? You'll
1: see it from time to time, but it really does come out around Christmas time for sure.
0: I feel like people don't realize if you see a Yule log or a Buche de Noël, it looks so beautiful and so complicated. People have no idea how actually simple, it's a simple rolled cake that's Mm -hmm. decorated, maybe with some Mm -hmm. meringue mushrooms or you talk about little presents and trees. And I love for your recipe that the instructions are long, but that they contain so much information and Text, about the textures you're looking for in the tips. So I just, mm. I really appreciated that. And you say the whole process takes about two hours, which is really not that It really long. does.
1: I made two today, actually. I'm in the process of making two yeah. today.
0: <laughs> I made my first one last Christmas. And I was just really so impressed with myself. I could not believe how easy it was and how amazing it looks.
1: It's a Uh, really impressive dessert to serve on Christmas. And it is. It's so traditional and it's really fun. And you do the decorations right before you put it on the table as well.
0: So first things first, we're going to make a Genoise cake. Can you tell everyone what the Genoise cake is?
1: Yeah, so a Genoise cake is a sponge cake. And just like the term it implies, it needs to soak in some sort of flavor. So you can add a jam on top, a simple syrup, or a mousse, something like that, to where that cake stays nice and moist. For Genoise cakes, typically you are whipping up the whole egg, which is very interesting and something that not a lot of people know that you can do. And you absolutely can. When you're whipping something, you're just whipping air into it to make it grow in volume. Are
0: you saying people don't realize that because usually you're just whipping whites? Is that your, when you say you have a full egg, you're saying, isn't that interesting? The yolk's included too. Correct. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, So first things first, we're going to spray a 10 by 15 inch jelly roll
1: pan I love using OXO for theirs. The I believe it's called the Gold Touch Pans. I think their release is excellent. I, I just love them. I have their muffin tin. I have their jelly roll pan. I have their half sheet pan. I think they're
0: great. And you're going to spray that with baking spray. Then we're going to mm-hmm. line with parchment. And you talk about how the parchment should go up the sides of the pan. Yes. So the yeah. sides of a jelly roll pan are super short. Is the idea that we just want them to go up the sides so we can lift it out, or is it more so that we can lift? I wasn't yeah. Sure so it was you can l-
1: lift it out, and it doesn't have to go that tall over the rim of the baking sheet. I would say an inch most. And what I found is that as long as it's going up the long sides of the pan, you're good. If it's not going up the short ends, that's okay. Because it's going to pull away from the sides. And do Mm -hmm. you need to clip it down? Like, does sometimes paper
0: flutters in my oven because I have a, I have a convection oven and I use like tiny little clips to hold the paper down or do you not have a problem with that? You
1: can, but if you cut it short enough, you don't really have to. Okay. I'm somewhat lazy with some of my baking things too. And that's something that I'm very lazy about. I'm like, oh. The paper's in the pan, but I think you are right. There is like a trick to it, right? If it is two inches, three inches above the rim of the pan, then you're going to have so much excess paper waving around in the oven and that's not great. So an inch above it at most and you're, you're good to go. And I also think that this is um
0: kind of a unique way of doing a sponge cake in my experience because I usually just line the bottom, spray the sides, and then I do that thing where you invert it onto a dish towel, but you have a whole... Mm interesting, cool way that I can't wait to share with people. But just so listeners know, this is a little unusual, at least in my experience, to have the sponge cake lifted out of the pan rather than inverted. So we're going to now spray the top of that parchment with with additional baking spray. And then we're going to heat our oven to 350 degrees. And we're going to measure and set aside our flour.
1: So I found out, I think about a year after living here, that there is a flour mill in Versailles that's been around since 1905. The family's name, Chaudet, actually means miller in an ancient dialect of French. So they've been milling flour for generations. And you can go and see the mill. They have a little boutique there. And because we are in Versailles, The bag is kind of a goldish yellow color (laughs) and it has the sun king on it and an outline of the Versailles Chateau. And so it's just kind of fun. And then it says Se Royale on the side, which means it's royal. It's not expensive. They're just kind of having fun with, you know, being in the town of Versailles. But the cool thing is, is that they use grain that has been uh, grown within, I believe it's 100 miles of Versailles completely family run. So it's now the son that has taken over and he's introduced using organic flowers and mixes. And so it's, it's a really, it's a cool thing. I I pop over there. I grab my flower. I
0: come back. Is it comparable to a King Arthur or another brand of flower that we
1: might find here? So flour is really interesting in France. It's entirely different from flour in the U.S. And this was a huge problem that I ran into when I was creating my recipes. And I was lucky because at the time, I started teaching virtually as well. And so I was able to see how my clients bakes for coming together. Something that I realized was that, oh, I have to take that extra step and have my mom ship me American mm. flour. <laughs> That makes sense. um, Oh, yeah. The flour here, so it is by T count. So it's T45, T55, T65. And that refers to an ash count. So what they do is they take a certain amount of flour, I believe it's 50 grams, I can't remember exactly and they burn it, and then they weigh the ash. And depending on how much the ash weighs, that is what the the number indicates. So if you think about it, the finer the flour is, the less the ash is going to weigh, so the lower the number. And then if you get into a higher number, so it can go up to T200, and sometimes I believe even higher, T280, I believe, they're using a different part of the wheat grain, right? They're using lots of different parts. It's a little bit coarser. And so that ash weighs more. So typically what is used here is what's T45, which is a fine pastry flour. That would be the equivalent in the US. I develop all of my recipes that they use, So they work with all-purpose flour in the US just to make it easy.
0: We're going to measure and set our flour aside with a sieve or a sifter. Now we're going to melt some unsalted butter and set that aside to cool in kind of a medium-sized bowl at this point or a small bowl for our butter, because I know we're going to add a little batter to it in a little while.
1: Yeah, the butter, it should be in just—I melt mine in like a soup bowl, like that size. Perfect. Yeah.
0: Now in the bowl of a stand mixer, and is it a KitchenAid stand mixer? What's your What's your yes?
1: I love KitchenAid. <laughs> <laughs> in,
0: in the bowl of a KitchenAid stand mixer fitted with the whisk attachment or in a large bowl using a hand mixer, we're going to place some room temp eggs, an egg yolk. Why do we need the yolk? For, for moisture or fat?
1: Yeah, so when I was developing the cake recipe, I was finding that it needed a little something else. And so I reached out to Rosalie B. Berenbaum. I love her baking Bible. Her cookbook's incredible. And I chatted with her about it because I'd seen lots of notes in her book about how egg size has changed and how that has actually a Genoa's recipe over the ages because this recipe has been around for a very, very long time. And so by adding that extra egg yolk, you're getting richness, extra richness, and you're getting the amount of egg yolk that you really need in that cake, which you can't get from just adding the amount of eggs that's called for in the recipe.
0: I love this tip you give us. You want these eggs to be room temp. So you say if they're a teeny bit cool, place it in a small bowl of warm water to bring them to room temp, which is a little trick I use all the time. And a great trick, listeners, if you ever forget to bring your eggs to room temp and you need them at room temp quickly, warm water in a bowl does the trick in less than five minutes. Now we're going to whip this egg mixture on medium-high speed, and I I love this note. You say, even though you may be inclined to put your mixer up to high, keep it at medium-high. Otherwise, you're going to get these big bubbles forming, which you don't want. That's a great example of one of your great tips, Molly.
1: Oh, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, that was a really big one. And it's been something that when I've been talking to my American clients, we're so inclined to rush through a recipe. The faster we can do it, the faster we can get it in the oven, the better. And it really, you have to take the time. Like I like to tell people, if you're making a French meringue, it can take upwards of eight to 10 minutes. And that's the case with the Jinwan's cake as well. When you're whipping these up, By whipping them on a medium high speed, you're creating a bubble structure that is formed with lots of little bubbles, which is going to be a lot stronger than large bubbles that are just going to float to the surface and pop. I
0: I love that. So we're doing this until the mixture triples in volume, very pale yellow in color, practically white, and almost mousse-like and thick in texture. And like Mm -hmm. you said, this can take eight to 10 minutes. I love you. Say, set your timer for eight and then look. Now we're going to, we lift the beater to check our texture. And this is that ribbon technique. Our batter needs to fall in this slow, thick ribbon, which takes a couple of seconds to disappear. And stay
1: on the top. So stay on top of the structure itself too, like the batter, because you don't want it to just dissolve quickly. So sometimes when I'm showing this, I'll be like, "Eh," it's getting that slow ribbon-like effect, but it's not just staying suspended on the top of those whipped eggs as long as I want. Like you should really see a little bit of a ribbon kind of hanging out there. So this creates that sturdy structure and creates the
0: lift in the sponge. Now we're gonna sift our flour over our whipped eggs in two additions and gently
1: folding. Are we using a spatula? Oh, I have such a collection of spatulas and my favorites are the fun ones from Sir mm-hmm. La <laughs> I think they're just so cute. So I love folding with a whisk, but in this case, I really like a spatula. There's something to it to where I have a little bit more control Another tip with folding in a flour substance into a wet substance is to try to keep that flour in the center of the bowl because if it collects on the sides, it's going to clump up and it's not going to as easily go into the mixture. And so by using a spatula, that can really help out with it.
0: I had never thought about trying to keep the flour in the center, but I think you and I do kind of have a similar folding technique. Mm. I go from the top of the bowl, down the center, and then around the side. Yes. And then I turn the bulb in the opposite direction to which I'm I'm moving my spatula. Is that kind of what you do as well?
1: Exactly. And if you think about it, essentially what you're doing is you're bringing what's at the top down to the bottom, then what's at the bottom up to the top. And so if you think about that, you're almost scooping what's on the bottom and bringing it up and then turning at the same time.
0: So once the flour is almost incorporated, you're going to, and I thought this is another great Molly tip, we're going to use our spatula as a scoop, scoop up some of the batter, add it to our cooled melted butter because you say that that makes it much easier to blend into the batter rather than the thin, dare I say, greasy butter situation. It's nice to have it mixed with the batter. And we're going to mix that up with a whisk.
1: Just to go back to that tip as well, just to explain it even further, when you're mixing together two things, they're easier to mix together when they're at a similar state. So if you think about it, you have this kind of cloudy, fluffy batter, and then you're going to try to add exactly what you're saying, a melty, buttery mixture to it. It's not going to combine very easily. So you can do this with all sorts of different things. I do it with like cream and cakes, like different kinds of cakes. But in terms of a whisk brand, I'm going to be a little, I don't know if you'd say bougie, but I don't know. The ones that I love, and you become very particular about things when you're a baker, I know you would totally understand this, is it's matte Fur. It's a very French, great brand. There's a couple of fantastic French brands here. It has a black handle and a little bit of a yellow at the bottom of that handle. And I found them at Ed de la Ronde. So it's the cooking supply shop that's been around since probably the 1830s, if I remember correctly. Ina Garten goes there. Julia Chow goes there. I love it. And I got to say, because it has a plastic handle, it just washes really well. The metal portion is not falling out of the handle. That just drives me nuts. I had a whisk like that. And I, yeah, <laughs> so having a good whisk in your, um, your refer- you know, in your kitchen is just, it's a good thing. <laughs> I totally
0: agree. We do become very particular about our, yeah, about our equipment. So then we're going to pour this butter mixture into the batter, fold it in carefully. I noticed that there's no salt in this recipe.
1: Oh, yes. Okay. A lot of my clients have pointed that out too. Salt and vanilla in French recipes in particular. So vanilla is a very easy one to explain. So vanilla, I don't know, I love it. As an American, I love it. We add it to everything. It's pretty much a complimentary uh, flavor that it just goes with yeah, everything, complements everything. Versus the French methodology behind vanilla is very much so when I'm doing vanilla, I'm doing vanilla and I'm doing it with a vanilla bean. You can find the teeniest, tiniest jars of vanilla extract in the grocery store, but that's it. They're not gonna add it to different things. When it comes to salt, that is something interesting that I have seen too, is that as Americans, we do like to flavor everything with a little pinch of salt. To bring out the flavor. And I honestly, if I'm baking, even if I don't see it in a recipe, I'll usually add a little pinch here and there, right? It's not gonna ruin the recipe or anything like that. For French pastry recipes, you don't always see it in there. So interesting. And I think, yeah, I think it does go back to that same thing of they're just letting those flavors shine. It's kind of a weird contrasting thing because you're like, well, wouldn't it salt make them shine further? So I don't know. I would just say it's a weird French thing. Yeah. (laughs) No, I've certainly had
0: experiences where I've made a cake, a chocolate cake, and forgotten the salt, Mm -hmm. and it tastes flat. Yeah. So it's interesting. not as good. But I trust the French. I trust the French. (laughs) Um, So now this is really cool. We're going to pour our batter into our prepared pan, but we're going to do so by pouring a line of batter down the center of the pan, and then with an offset, spreading the batter into the corners, and then filling in the rest of the pan. Talk to me
1: about that. Yeah. So it's just all about making it easier for yourself. So instead of just doing a big pool of the batter in the center of the pan, why not? I mean, we know we're going to spread it into the corners, So let's just do a big line down the middle. And then what I like to do is I focus on the corners first. So I drag what is in the middle, which is typically where we put the most batter anyways, when we're pouring it. And I drag that into the four corners. And then I focus on filling the rest of the pan.
0: Then we're immediately going to place the pan into the oven to keep the batter from deflating and bake for about 9 to 11 minutes. Cake is done when it's lightly browned across the whole surface and pulling from the sides. This is another great tip. Once we remove the pan, we're going to cover the cake with a damp, clean tea towel. So I never knew the damp trick. I have covered before but usually only because I'm covering the cake so that I can invert it immediately. Mm. So I love the damp trick. Am I like taking a tea towel, putting it under the faucet, wringing it out and then draping it over? Incredible,
1: incredible. It should sizzle a little bit as you put it in there. So I mean, it shouldn't be sopping wet, right? Right. We don't want to get that moisture into the cake and your tea towel is going to get a little bit dirty. I feel like I always have to say this when I'm teaching it. It'll get a little bit dirty. Just throw it in the washing machine. It's not a big deal. (laughs) And you say that it's okay if the cloth touches the cake
0: a little bit, and basically we're doing this to keep moisture in the cake and to help prevent cracking, which when you roll a genoise, that's a big issue.
1: It's a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. So the added butter in the recipe will help with that, with cracking. Getting the bake correct will help as well. And then you're just taking all these additional steps, right? Okay. I added the butter. I got the bake right. And now I'm putting this damp towel on top, keeping that moisture in so it doesn't dry out as it's cooling. I love it. So now we're going to let that cake cool while we make a
0: ganache. We're going to heat cream to a simmer, pour over chopped chocolate. And we're going to wait one to two minutes, which when I make ganache, I usually wait 30 seconds, maybe 45 seconds. Remind Mm. us why, after we pour our hot cream over our chopped chocolate, why do we need to wait before we start to stir?
1: As soon as you start stirring, you're cooling down your mixture. So you're incorporating air, just as we do when we're whisking things, right? And so if it hasn't started to melt then it's going to cool down too quickly and you're going to have chunks of chocolate in that mixture. And then you're going to have to go, Oh shoot, I have to reheat it again and then whisk it again. and da, da, da. So just waiting. I, okay. I will say I typically probably wait about 30 seconds too. <laughs> if you have the patience, a minute is great. I never have the patience for two minutes though. <laughs> so now we're going to keep
0: our ganache at room temp to cool it and have it firm up so it's spreadable, so we can spread it on our on our bouche. And if if needed, you can chill in the fridge because it will speed things up. But you warn people, and I have to say, been there, done that. Yeah. If you leave it too long, it hardens, and it's a nightmare, and you have to heat it in the microwave or on a double boiler. And
1: it, it really is worth just—especially like we're making this typically at a time of year when it's cold in our kitchens, and— it's, it's okay to leave it out. And I will say like another thing with ganache is that the texture, the consistency highly depends on the chocolate that you're using. This isn't something where the recipe calls for semi-sweet, and you're going to change it out for milk or white chocolate. You really have to follow that. And know too, that even if you are doing what is called for in the recipe, like I believe I said bittersweet, I probably said bittersweet because that's, that's typically what I bake with. I, I just like the flavor of bittersweet. Um, it balances out with other flavors very well. And so even if you're using what is called for, if you change the brand, you'll even get a different result. It's crazy. And so ganaches, I like to tell my students when I'm teaching them live that you can adjust a ganache recipe. So if you're looking at it and you're like, oh my gosh, it's so liquid. How is this going to firm up? Then you can always add a little bit more melted chocolate. Or if you're like, ah, it seems really thick. You can add a little bit more cream or milk and that's no problem.
0: Next, we're going to make our milk chocolate French buttercream. We're going to beat egg yolks for several minutes on medium speed. Is that around five minutes or do you not like to give a time because it really has to be visual?
1: For this part, it doesn't really matter that much. Essentially, what you're doing is just breaking up those egg yolks to where you can incorporate the sugar syrup that's to come because it is a smaller amount. I believe it's three egg yolks, if I remember correctly. We're not trying to incorporate air. It's not gonna happen very easily with that quantity. And so it really is just breaking them up and getting them ready for this hot sugar syrup. We're gonna beat our
0: eggs just until they're slightly lighter in color on medium speed. Now we're gonna heat granulated sugar and water on the stove top to 244 degrees Fahrenheit. And we're using a thermometer, obviously. Do you have a preferred thermometer?
1: I do. And I got it in my pastry kit when I was at the Cordon Bleu, and it has never failed me. It's a Mastrad, Mm M-A-S-T-R-A-D. It was a little bit more on the expensive side because I looked up the brand for my clients and I adore it. I've been using it for 10 years, no fail. It's fantastic. So
0: as soon as you hit your temp, you're going to take it off the heat. You'll let the bubbles calm down for a couple of seconds while giving the yolks one last final whisk. And then we're going to slowly pour our hot sugar syrup into the yolks. Again, you have a great tip. We're going to avoid hitting the whisk with the syrup or hitting the syrup with the whisk. And we're going to aim for the gap in between the side of the bowl and the whisk. Tell us why is that important.
1: Yeah. So if you hit the whisk, it's going just going to spin that sugar around the sides of the bowl and it's not going to get in the egg yolks. If trying to hit that gap, though, is really hard because it is small, it's small, just drizzle it down the side of the bowl and you're still going to have so much less waste than if you were hitting the whisk anyways, that you're all good to go. And the other thing is, is you can't scrape your pan, right? Because it's hot sugar that's going to cool really fast. And the other tip that I have is that when you get to the end of that sugar syrup in your pot, as you're pouring it in, if you lift it up and over the KitchenAid head or whatever stand mixer that you're using, it helps you to get that last little bit. In other words, go a little taller than
0: you might, rather than being kind of low with your pour, get higher with your pour. Correct. Love it. At the end, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you say that the egg yolks will initially look watery with this addition of the syrup and then they'll lighten in color and thicken as the two are beaten together. But if this was an Italian meringue, it would be the same thing except no yolks.
1: Correct. Yeah. So essentially what you're doing is you're cooking that egg. So either if it was a yolk or a white, when you're adding that really hot sugar syrup to where it's really safe for people to eat. By doing with yolks instead of whites, again, we're getting that richness.
0: What's the difference between Italian and Swiss?
1: Oh my gosh, I, <laughs> I love talking meringues. So they're all named after countries. So you have French, Italian, and Swiss. French is the easiest. It's you whip up your egg whites and you add granulated sugar to it, super easy. Swiss is you add the egg whites and the sugar to a bowl over a bain-marie that is simmering. You whisk it to melt the sugar and then you whip it up. I, I personally hate a Swiss meringue. <laughs> which is a strong word, but it is very true. I didn't even include a Swiss meringue in my cookbook. For me, I'm like, if you need to know two meringues, it's French and it's Italian. Italian is the most stable. So as we were saying, it's whipping up your egg whites to a stiff peak and then adding the syrup and then whipping it, which is cooling your syrup and cooking them at the same time. So it's the most stable meringue that you have. Meanwhile, we're going to melt our milk chocolate.
0: And set that aside to cool as the buttercream finishes whipping up. And then we're slowly going to add very soft, unsalted butter. Is there a trick for very soft, unsalted butter? Or it's just we want it to be the kind of thing where we press with our finger and the indentation is easily made?
1: You don't want it melty, right? But you don't want it firm. It needs to be soft, pliable. But yeah, not to that melting stage. Because if it is too cold, it will not incorporate well into our buttercream mixture so we're going to slowly add that soft butter to the whipped egg yolks one cube at a
0: time whisking on medium speed then we'll whip in our melted chocolate you say if it's a very very soft at this point we can stick it in the fridge for five to ten minutes to firm it up slightly and you can also make this recipe with an american buttercream if you would like but absolutely i think think you want ease go for it yeah. yeah Yeah, and that would just be confectioner sugar and butter, and melted chocolate, and melted milk chocolate. So now we're exactly. going to assemble our bouche. We're going to remove that damp towel from the cooled cake, and it can be there for a while. I assume, like there's no yeah. limit on while while you go ahead and do all your your frosting and your ganache. It just sits there with this damp is- towel.
1: Yes, this is something really good to know about pastry, too, is that, yes, there are a lot of steps to it, typically, but a lot of the times you can take a pause. Like, I could run to the grocery store and then finish it later in the day, and I wouldn't be too worried about it.
0: And we're going to transfer the cake to a clean workspace, or are we removing, removing it from the pan at this point?
1: Yes, you're just lifting it up. Exactly what we're talking about at the beginning. You're lifting it up out of the pan using that parchment paper. And it is important to keep that parchment
0: paper there. Right. We're going to leave the parchment paper on the bottom. We're going to make sure we have our serving platter nearby. We're going to spread the milk chocolate buttercream on top of the cake. And then we're going to roll the cake up from one of its short ends using the parchment paper to help us. So as you say, it's a little awkward, but be patient. We're rolling yeah. a teeny bit at a time and then kind of peeling back the paper so we're not rolling the paper up with it right I, yes. I, I do want to point out that many bouche recipes or for rolled jelly roll cake recipes will have you literally roll up a dish towel or roll up parchment with the yeah. cake. and this oh, is such, yes. yes And this is amazing Molly's way of doing the damp cloth is amazing because you don't need to do that.
1: Correct. Yeah, and I I did a whole lot of research on that, trying different styles, and I can't remember where I saw that initially, but it just works like a charm. Yeah, it's you really you're lifting up the parchment paper almost at like a forty five degree angle to where that gravity is helping that cake roll down. So I usually have one hand that's holding the parchment paper up, and then the other hand that is doing the rolling motion down with the cake. Perfect.
0: Perfect. And so
1: once you have that
0: roll going, you're like you said, you're using the parchment paper to help move the cake. And this allows for more even pressure when rolling. And when you're just about at the end of the roll, you'll transfer the cake and the trailing parchment, as it were, to a serving platter and pull the parchment off.
1: Yeah, you pull the parchment off and then usually that's, that's the end and you just tuck the end under. You make yeah. sure that seam is underneath. Exactly. So- Neat, clean, love it. So now we're gonna
0: decorate. We'll chill the cake for 15 to 30 minutes to firm up the buttercream that's in the center. Then we'll trim the edges of the cake if needed, just for aesthetics, yes?
1: If you want. So there's two ways of doing it. You can trim the ends if you want. So the one that I did for the cookbook, I actually, because I'm rolling the shorter way, which using a jelly roll pan and for this cake, it gives you a better swirl on the inside and height. I didn't trim the ends off because I didn't want to lose that cake. So instead, I encased them in that chocolate ganache. I love that.
0: So we're going we're gonna to trim those ends if we want with a serrated knife. Then we're going to spread our ganache on the outside with an offset spatula. Do you like a small one at this point or do you like a large one?
1: I typically always work with a small one. I think this is four inches. I think it's just so much more control over what you're doing. Me too. No matter the job, I always want the small one.
0: So we spread our ganache all over with our offset. And then you say to make long indentations, which I assume are like lines with the edge of the spatula, because I always use a always. I've only made one once, but let's (laughs) pretend always. I've always used a fork.
1: Yeah. So I have seen that done before. But I like how it looks with an offset spatula. I think the lines are a little bit more elegant. They're larger. They don't have that uniformity that you have with a fork, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so it's just a little bit more rustic. I mean, it's a log. So for me, it looks more log-like <laughs> And that, when we're doing that,
0: those indentations are so that it looks like bark. So now we're going to cover the ends as well with the ganache. And we're going to make a swirl pattern with the end of a kebab stick. Is that like a long wooden skewer?
1: Yeah, anything that you have. I actually, I have um, paintbrushes that I use just for food and I typically use that. So any sort of stick or surface, you just want to make a swirl so it's imitating that end of the log. It does help if you wait for just a little bit for the ganache to cool so you have a more defined line, too. Love it. Then you're going to dust with
0: powdered sugar so it looks like snow and maybe decorate with some meringue mushrooms or acorns or cranberries or whatever you have. Do you then stick it back in the fridge to set everything before serving?
1: Yes, absolutely. So for this cake, you want it to set in the fridge for at least 30 minutes before you serve it. Just because that buttercream, especially the French buttercream is going to be a little bit softer on the inside. It's going to help you get those nice clean cuts and set that ganache as we were talking about. I will say though that you do want to, this is a typical thing with French pastries and French food in general, is that you want it to sit out at room temperature. So it's at the best flavor that it can possibly be. Like you can taste everything a lot better when it's room 10 versus cold. Yes. I, I just will come out here. I need to get a t-shirt
0: that says this, but I really hate cold cake. Like it really, really really upsets me. (gasps) That's good. (laughs) (laughs) So I just want to talk about a couple of recipes from the book. I read that croquembouche is your favorite thing to make. Tell us about why that is. And maybe tell us what croquembouche is in case people don't know.
1: Ah, I love it. So it is the traditional wedding cake here in France. It is a pile of cream puffs that have been dipped in caramel, but then also attached to themselves with caramel in a dome-like shape. It is just magnificent, beautiful. And it's also, it's not difficult, difficult, but you are playing a little bit of Tetris with caramel. And so if you're not careful, I mean, it, it can be pretty, pretty difficult, but I like it too, because it's very ethereal. So it only lasts for one day. And so when you're making this, you have to make your shoe pastry in advance. I typically will freeze them and then pop them in the oven and re-crisp them before I use them. So they're just like they've been freshly baked. make your pastry cream in advance, right? You fill them on the day that you're going to make it. And then you're making this cone-like shape and you can make it any size that you want from miniatures to huge imans crock and bush structures. And the word itself means crack in the mouth. So crock, like you're biting something crunchy, the caramel obviously in the mouth. So moosh is your mouth. Yeah.
0: All right, if that's a traditional French wedding cake, I'm renewing my vows in Paris because I really want somebody to give me that on my wedding. <laughs> and I miss Yeah, that.
1: we're going to have one. We're getting married in May and we oh. will absolutely be having a crock and so That was the one thing that I was like, yes.
0: <laughs> I love
1: that. I had coconut cupcakes,
0: which are also good. I also love the Balm Gâteau because it, it looks so striking and reminds me kind of it gives me like baked Alaska vibes. I mean, I know without mm. without meringue. Mm-hmm. Tell us what a Balm
1: Gâteau is. So a bomb means bomb. So it's in the shape of a bomb and there's a lot of different ways of doing it. So it is very reminiscent of a baked Alaska for sure. For mine, what I did was one of those, I wish you like a candy shell type chocolate coating, you know, where you pour it over the top really quickly and it hardens and then you can have it set up in the fridge or the freezer. It's just a, exactly what you're saying. Very, very striking and the name goes back to the shape. Absolutely. Thank you so much for chatting
0: with me today, Molly. And I just want to say that you are my cherry pie. Oh,
1: it has been so much fun. Thank you.
0: That's it for today's show. Thank you to Plugra Premium European Style Butter and California Prunes for their support. Don't forget to subscribe to She's My Cherry Pie on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and tell your baking buddies about us. She's My Cherry Pie is a production of the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network and is recorded at CityVox Studio in Manhattan. Our producers are Carrie Diamond and Catherine Baker. Our associate producer is Jenna Sadu, and our editorial assistant is London Crenshaw. Thank you so much for listening to She's My Cherry Pie, and happy baking.